Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Carmen Descamps. Carmen is the European Affair Manager at the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom on the European Dialogue Chapter. And our conversation will focus on the publication that she edited, and she's also an author, To Be or Not To Be, EU Citizenship. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you more about some events organized by ELF. I'm here with Carmen Descamps. Carmen, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Hello, Ricardo. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. We've been trying to have this conversation for some time now because one of the topics that I really want to uh, pick your mind is on European citizenship. You've been working on that for some time now and also you have a publication coming up and we will be talking about that in a second. But first of all, tell me why do liberals should care about European citizenship. Why is this important for liberal, for liberals and the liberal ideology? Well, first of all, um, thank you for picking this topic up, Ricardo. Indeed, the the topic of EU citizenship has followed me throughout the last year, 2019, and still in 2020, because some of uh, well the political news last year have been closely associated with uh, EU citizenship. I think we will come back uh, on that later on. But first of all, yes, why should liberals take care or be concerned about EU citizenship? It is a question that also touches upon uh, everyone's rights. We will talk about that later on. Every EU citizen is entitled to a certain number of rights that are connected to EU citizenship. So as a national of a member state, you have certainly... A number of rights and you have additional ones and also when it comes to liberal values for example openness tolerance and freedom they're also closely connected to EU citizenship as we will see in a while and all these these uh, values are then embodied by the European Union so this is like multiple connections going on and the more people know about it the more they know about their f freedoms and their rights and that also helps people to be more active then because and and we'll be touching this in a minute uh, one thing that is lacking it's information what is european citizenship what exactly people have that they are not exploring so let's start with that give me what is in your opinion a definition of what is to be a citizen of the European Union? Well, I don't, I don't claim to give a purely academic uh, definition of what it is to be a citizen of the Union, or in short, an EU citizen. As it's written in the treaties, since, uh, to be very precise, since the Treaty of Maastricht, since uh, 1992, every citizen of the, the, the Union or every national of an EU member state um, is automatic has automatically EU citizenship, or to to cite uh, very precisely, citizenship of the Union is hereby established, as said in Article 20 uh, of the Treaty of the, on the Functioning of the European Union. And then they go further: every person holding the nationality of a member state shall be a citizen of the Union. So, well, legally, it's very clear: if you are German, Portuguese, Estonian. 
Dutch national. You also uh, you you also do have uh, European citizenship. Also on those treaties, there are some rights that are associated with it. And you have been working in a publication which is called To Be or Not To Be European Citizenship. I already mentioned that in the intro. But get a, get a little bit into what are then the rights that are associated with this EU, EU citizenship. Yes, sure. <laughs> Um, I can also reassure you that I'm not giving a, an ac academic lecture here. I'd rather invite you to read the publication in detail because uh, precisely in one of the chapters I explain all those rights that EU citizens are entitled to, but you can, um, to summarize them, they all fall under different, under different headings. For example, freedom of movement. Freedom of mm -hmm. movement um, grants EU citizens the right to move and reside freely on the European territory that we already know. Um, then the provisions, they do make a difference on uh, if there is a cross-border element, for example, if a national crosses a border or if, um, for example, you're, you're abroad, you're traveling. But EU citizenship also applies within the same country. For example, you in Germany, you encounter a problem that is, well, in principle, could be related to EU citizenship, then you can invoke those EU citizenship as uh, rights as well. So freedom of movement is one big chapter. Another one, um, what we saw in 2019, are political and electoral rights. For example, standing and taking part in European elections. I do work for the Friedrich Naumann Foundation in Belgium, in the Brussels office, and for example in European elections, so following these EU citizenship provisions, in EU elections, so European and also regional elections, I can vote for candidates of the country where I am legally residing. So for example, I had to apply at my commune, at my uh, municipality, um, to, to be registered on the voters list and then I could vote for Belgian candidates. So far for European elections, some of you might also know about the European Citizens Initiative. So this is a an initiative that could be brought or can be brought before the European Commission if uh, organizers succeed in collecting one million signatures of support um, to invite the European Commission to act. In very different uh, in very different areas. So, these uh, that's it for the political and electoral rights. You also have protective rights if you're, for example, traveling um, and you're a national from an EU member country with not very much uh, diplomatic representations throughout the world. Then you can, for example, go to any other embassy of an EU member state and uh, seek help from from that administration. You're also entitled to receive information in any of the treaty languages, so not only in the official working languages, German, French and English. Uh, for example, if you are an, let's say, well, Portuguese national, you can address the institutions in Portuguese and receive an answer in Portuguese then. So that's in, in, in a nutshell. Um, and very important, haha, last but not least, 
equality and non-discrimination, uh, especially for liberals, the principle of equality is a very important one. And this is also one of the elements of EU citizenship, because um, European citizens are entitled to an, an egalitarian, non-discriminatory approach to all citizens of the Union. So it doesn't matter uh, which nationality you do have, which gender, of which racial or ethnic origin you are, which religion or belief you're, uh, you feel close to, um, if you have any disabilities, your age or your sexual orientation, all that doesn't matter. You're entitled to, uh, well, an equal, equal treatment and equal rights. So you see that your citizenship provision are very manifold and they ensure basic rights for EU citizens, for a number of EU citizens, every one of us. Well, you did a wonderful job in describing them because they are many and they are very extensive. But now let's change gears a little bit. And, it, and that is for people who are listening to this podcast, they start understanding, well, I have all these rights and these rights are here and they're here to protect me. How can we make them also then be more uh, available to people, meaning how can we increase this awareness that these rights exist, there are machinery that this machinery you just mentioned, the one like for example to have any kind of petition or to be protected in a country, in some other country where you can go to any embassy, mm -hmm. how can we make this uh, then be more present and more active in the minds of people? That is indeed a very good question because what I found out in the in the last months or also while working on the publication is that um, the instruments are there, but not necessarily the knowledge. So first, um, it would go through information, through, for example, also this podcast, through a publication, but not also, but we also need like kind of ambassadors, I would say. Mm -hmm. So the more people uh, promote that concept of EU citizenship and make it as concrete as possible in order for people to realize that actually, ah, these are my rights. I can invoke those rights if I might be in trouble one day. Um, so m make it as concrete as possible, actually, and also involve uh, multipliers. For example... To give you an idea, there are Eurobarometers that are realized, well, twice a year, actually. And there is one, one on European citizenship that has been released in spring 2018. And I would say that also almost two years later, uh, those, those figures are still quite valid. So actually, those, those Eurobarometers uh, polls, they show that in 2018... 70% of uh, the citizens felt like a citizen of the European Union, whereas 30% did not. So the feeling is there, the identification. Yeah, let me interrupt you right there, Carmen. This is, in all uh, for all purposes, this is like actually a good number, 70% of people. Of course, there's a lot of work to do. There's other 30% of people that we need to reach. But in your opinion, this is a positive number or do you think it's not yet there for us to be positive about this? 
Well, actually, this number only concerns the awareness of Europeanness. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I ask you, do you rather feel as a European or as a national of member state XYZ, or do you feel as both? So there, the numbers are, are, are fairly positive. When you ask precisely people about uh, their awareness about those those rights, what they're entitled to, they, the the numbers are um, are fairly lower actually. It drops out, I imagine. Yes. It 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 drops. I will, if I recall it correctly, it is um, one citizen out of two. Mm -hmm. being aware of those citizens' rights. So actually, uh, the awareness of the rights goes through promotion. Also there, the publication makes some recommendations which uh, tackle actually the different policy areas that the rights are referring to that are just, uh, that are just named. For example, freedom of movement. We actually could advise to reframe those EU citizenship rights as fundamental rights for every European, because one of the misconceptions that are also underlined in the publication is that EU citizenship rights are often associated with mobile EU citizens. So, mm. for example, those that can travel uh, for private or for business reasons, those that are uh, able to profit from Erasmus, from uh, no roaming fees. This is only a well, low percentage of the popul uh, population of our member states, but not every EU citizens. However, EU citizenship rights, as I said, apply to every European, not only to the lucky ones that can travel. So actually, we need to shift the awareness uh, around EU citizenship rights and then well, reframe it um, and also facilitate some rights. As I just said, um, as a German national living in Brussels for the EU, EU elections, I had to contact my municipality to be put on a voters list. They didn't know I would. I wanted to vote in, in Belgium. So there also, for example, you could um, make it more, more straightforward, more straightforward automatic uh, voter registration. Once you're registered in the municipality, you are by default on the voters list for that municipality in that country. This is a recommendation to make it more straightforward because... Um, especially when it comes to EU elections, the the, the different processes for voter re registration, they differ from one country to another. There is no harmonized measure. So also for EU citizens, it's quite difficult to know which procedure applies to your particular case. In Portugal, it's different than, than in Belgium. Uh, in Germany, it's different than, uh, for example, in, in Finland. So that, that, there, are, there is some progress to be made. Yes, and facilitate the machinery, make it more clear and not have situations like you just mentioned. I imagine you or someone that is listening to us going to a municipality, going to the government in a way and say, hey, I want to you know, use my rights as a EU citizenship and people on the other side of the, 
of the table are like, what? We don't know anything about that. So that is a problem to solve. But I interrupted you a minute ago because you were talking about a multiplayers, the, the several stakeholders in this process. One of them, of course, is the European Union from the European Commission all the way down. The other ones will be, of course, the governments from the member states. But also, what can the civil society do? Are there you know, um, NGOs that are working on this? You were just mentioning that citizens can apply to uh, also to have their um, requests or their suggestions listened at the highest level, which is European Union. Do you have any, any, any other tools that people can use? You highlighted a very, very good um, element, which are then the multipliers in order to make EU citizenship rights more known. So you can, what I just said, start at a very institutional level, going from the European level down to the municipal one. But you could also take um, another approach, which is then the bottom up. So civil society organizations, non-governmental organizations, be there, um, be it on a European or on a national level. There is, for example, the European Citizens Action Service for years is actually providing help to citizens who would like to invoke their EU citizenship rights. What I'm also thinking of is, as we're here in uh, the ELF podcast, and ELF is the official think tank of the Alder Party, you can also involve political multipliers, for example, members of the European Parliament or also members of the Committee of, of the Region, liberals on every political level to make EU citizenship more concrete. I can give you a very precise example of Claudia Gammon from the Austrian NEOS, who campaigned during the European elections and the subsequent national elections to extend EU citizenship rights and in particular political voting rights to every resident uh, of the territory. So to make it more clear, as I said, European citizens living abroad are entitled to take part in European and regional elections, but not in national elections. If you follow the approach of no taxation without representation, they would also like to extend those voting rights to national elections so that Europeans living in another member state, they can really identify with their political representative and also have a say on, on, on the political decisions that are going to be taken by their representatives. Um, so you see that actually the, the approach to, to reform on, or also to increase knowledge about EU citizenship rights can take place on, on many levels, on a top-down, with a top-down approach and also with a bottom-up one. And you can really involve multiple stakeholders from academia, from the political landscape, from the civil society organization. Wonderful. This this is a great conversation and it deserves a second podcast. And that is the fact that you mentioned and Claudia Gammon also, which is if you are affected by political decisions in the country where you live, that happens not to be the country where you're from. Well, you should have a word about it. So that is a great, a great point. Now, uh, let's get a little more political here, uh, Carmen. And that is how can the European Union fight even more to protect those rights, for example, in former member states, and of course, we just have one, the United Kingdom, 
and as we record this, we know how that thing is going, or then to other countries that they want to be part of the union, and we should tell them immediately beforehand, say, this is the criteria, and we will not give up on this. So give us your thoughts on that. Indeed, this is a very topical question. So um, <laughs> initially, when I was working on that, on that project, on the, on the question of EU citizenship, I didn't mean to have only this Brexit view on it. So I had also the, the opportunity to think multiple times about that question of EU citizenship after Brexit or EU citizenship for countries that are not member of the European Union. This is a very complex topic. Our liberal listeners might remember Guy Verhofstadt being a very vocal advocate for a concept that is called associated citizenship, which means that basically citizens of the United Kingdom or of any other former EU member state they remain citizens of the European Union and that they can then profit from the EU citizenship rights, despite their, um, their country not being member of the European Union anymore. What does that mean, actually? Um, it means that a new category of citizenship would have been introduced. Why do I say would have been? It's not as easy as it, as it sounds, only by inventing a new term. Actually, introducing associated European citizenship means changing the treaties. Changing the treaties means opening the box of Pandora. So, so far, there, ha there have been proposals since 2016, actually, uh, with an amendment to introduce that concept uh, in the European Parliament. That idea has been taken up again in 2020, beginning 2020 in, uh, in January, just before the United Kingdom left the European Union. But uh, so far, this is an ongoing story. I'd say it is not likely to happen anytime soon, because as I said, it would require treaty change. And there is also... If you ask experts on that topic, so far there is too much legal uh, uncertainty around this topic. Because, for example, if you give associated citizenship to UK nationals, how do you deal with those nationals of countries that would like to join the European Union? Do you grant that status also to them? At what cost? also when it comes to the European Union. So the very essence also of the European Union is the four freedoms. So if they, you actually give them away without EU membership, you sell the very essence of what is so special about the European Union. It is a good idea, and I think as much as we all would like UK nationals to, to stay close to the European Union and also to enable them to still benefit from EU citizenship rights, so far, I don't see any concrete solution on the horizon. Well, it is something that we'll keep uh, in front of, of the news because, as we know, and here in Portugal in particular, but also in Spain, it happens a lot, which is there's a lot of uh, UK citizens that are moving to uh, this uh, 
more sunny uh, areas, let's call it that way, and we will have to solve that problem. And the other problem, of course, is what happens if the United Kingdom will just completely collapse and we'll have Scotland and Ireland can reunify. So things for us to keep looking at. Now, uh, Carmen, as we're getting closer to the end of our our talk, and um, I'm would love to have you back on the podcast to continue this conversation. But one thing With that pleasure. runs parallel to uh, you citizenship is European culture. And, yes. and here in particular, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think we should work much more in having uh, this concept of being a European, but also of enjoying and being immersed in European culture. How can people do that? Uh, tell us some ways to develop that. Actually, there is already European culture, which you can see in um, very clearly in the motto of the European Union, united in diversity. So first of all, the basic understanding is that there is not the European culture. There are multiple cultures, actually, that overlap, that have developed in, in parallel and what keeps us together are, for example, our values, our basic convictions, which are all also enshrined in the treaties, now legally speaking. But there are also other cultural elements. There is like the Eurovision Song Contest. There are, if I think of Brussels, for example, there is a newly opened House of European History where you can actually experience and, and travel through history in I would say barely three or four hours. So if you happen to, to pass by Brussels, I can only invite you to go, go to the House of European History. It's free of access. It's open every day. It's located next to the European Parliament. So there you can actually see what, what makes us unique as Europeans and going even further. So the, the House of European History is something tangible. It's a building. Um Another idea is, for example, that one of European public spheres, an idea of Habermas, who said that actually there are different fora of communication, of discussion that might overlap at some point. They're not really tied to uh, a specific territory. So, for example, when we're talking, when we've been talking during the last months about Brexit in different member states, you can see that different topics that do overlap. And we have the same frame, so we 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 adopt common angles, uh, which is the basic understanding that uh, first of all, it is a democratic decision decision to leave the European Union, which we might deplore, but um, <laughs> nevertheless, we we would all like to 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 remain close to um, the British citizens, to the United Kingdom as a whole, and uh, will keep also this European spirit alive. There are also consultations, consultations through Europe, where every European citizen is asked for her or his opinion, both in a bottom-up and a top-down approach. Um, so European culture is actually very diverse, also in its, in its languages, for example, and I think uh, this is a, a an extreme gift that we have uh, and that we maybe don't value enough every day. But uh, European culture is, is something that, that grows, that expands in a constant manner. 
you see when you travel, you see it when you read, for example, as well. Well, in, in very different situations, and you don't actually need to move or not very far. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So I'm, I'm just thinking of a supermarket, for example. Go to the supermarket, have a look what they propose uh, for Italian food, Spanish food, uh, from, from the Nordics as well. Bigger supermarkets, they also have uh, wines from other EU countries. There is a common denomination of cultural origin. The same is valid for cheese. So you see that the cheese comes from, I don't know, a, a specific... Netherlands. From yeah, for the, from Spain, the Netherlands. From here we are talking about cliches, but this is also part of European culture. Well, I'm going to leave an idea here. So this is for us to take action. Why not have a, a house of European history in every capital of every member state? There it is. We're getting to the end of the conversation. I want you please to direct our listeners to have to know more about this and one of them is the publication that we just mentioned to be or not to be European citizenship and I'm going to put the link once it's online on the description of the podcast. Do you have other uh, pieces of work that you would like to mention? Well, there have been also several blog posts on the topic of EU citizenship, but there are more lists that have been incorporated into the publication, serve as a toolbox for information, awareness raising, uh, different case studies also, and giving recommendations on how to foster uh, awareness, knowledge, and active citizenship. So I don't have to add more here. Wonderful. Well, again, the links are going to be in the description of the podcast. Go read, know your rights, defend your rights, and let's work together to have even a better European citizenship. Carmen, it was a great pleasure to have you here. It was worth the wait because I've been waiting for this for some time now. And I'm going to ask you to come back, please, so that we can continue this conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ricardo. And thank you, dear listeners, for staying with us. It was a pleasure. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. We also have a new podcast, which is called Liberal Europe Podcast in Lockdown. And also to remind you that the European Liberal Forum is organizing every Wednesday a web seminar called Liberties in Lockdown. So please join us for that. And you can know more information on liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.
and you can find it on our website, which is liberalforum.eu forward slash blog.